everyone. Welcome to Grimwit with Dimwits. I'm Blondie. And I'm T. Okay. <laughs> so did you come up with a fabulous name for yourself? No, I've got a freaking life. I don't got time for that. <laughs> okay, well, I'm still going to be Blondie the Dimwit extraordinaire. Oh, now you're Blondie the Dimwit <laughs> I am. You keep adding to it. That's right. Oh. I'm going to have a flipping title by the time we're done. I know, right? And I'm just going to be T. <laughs> we can even make it just one letter. <laughs> Short and sweet, just like me. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll, we'll go with that for the moment. <laughs> so what's going on? Well, I feel like we needed that whole week to kind of get over <laughs> last week's episode. The trauma, the trauma of it all. Right. It was so traumatizing and, and so wonderful. We're going to do some more today. <laughs> We're a glutton for punishment. A glutton for punishment? Glutton for punishment. Glutton for <laughs> Don't be a hater. Dimwit extraordinaire <laughs> in the right. house. And I've got my whole hands in the air every time I say it. People are going to get so tired of hearing about that. Okay, we are going to do the second half of the Night Stalker episode. Is this where the drum roll, roll ensues? Pretty much. <laughs> uh, I will say thank you, everyone, for listening to the first half. We've had some uh, wonderful people from all over the world starting to listen. Yes, it's been awesome. Thank you. It's been great. We love it. We love it. We love it. And we hope you keep Staying tuned in. I hope we don't scare you away anytime <laughs> in the near future. <laughs> All right, so let's get going with the second half of the Night Stalker episode. We left you all in May of 1985 with the murder of William Doy, while his wife, Lillian Doy, survived, but was left with a nightmarish kiss directly on her lips from Richard Ramirez following a brutal assault. Ugh, it's just, it's so disgusting. I can't even, I can't even imagine. In the previous episode, we also covered seven murders and multiple attacks. If you'd like to hear the details, please listen to last week's episode. That episode also includes some traumatizing information on the childhood of Richard Ramirez, which set him on a path of evil where he would eventually become the Night Stalker. Satan's humble servant. Before we get started in that, I do want to bring up that we had talked last week about why he wore all black. So I did look that up, and here's a quote that I found. He said, Bloodthirsty creature of the night, a ghoulish demon who cloaked himself in darkness to commit a series of gruesome murders. He wore all black and kept to the shadows, wrapping himself in the night, and embracing his twisted inner darkness and inhumanity as something to celebrate. Wow, that's really twisted. It sounds so much like him, too, because he's pretty twisted as well. Oh, don't get me started. So now let's continue with his next victims, his capture, his sentence, and his ultimate demise. Let's hear it, T. All right, I'm going to give it to you, my best one. Let the grim begin. <laughs> I like how you're trying to be all Halloween spooky over there. Obviously, that's not my part-time job. <laughs> <laughs> On May 29th, 1985, detectives connected their killer with the Monrovia case of 83-year-old Mabel, known as Ma Bell, and Florence, known as Nettie Lang. 
Ma had been a very active and healthy senior citizen. In fact, she was so giving that she decided to take in her disabled sister so that at 81 years old, Nettie wouldn't have to be institutionalized. Imagine being in your 80s and rather than just worrying about yourself and your golden years, you take on the responsibility of another senior citizen with disabilities. She must have been quite a lady and obviously a kind and generous soul. I know I said this a number of times last week, but the tenacity and straight up strength of these women, especially in their 80s, is literally baller. Sure is. It's double baller. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, We'll let that one go. (laughs) I apologize now. But these trusting and lovely ladies often left their front door unlocked. That was definitely a thing back in the day. I think it must have given people a lot of peace to know that they could leave their doors unlocked without having to worry. But of course, never expecting to cross paths with a black-hearted, soulless Richard Ramirez. After letting himself in and ready to do Satan's bidding, he quickly noticed that these two ladies had very little to steal. And in his twisted thinking, he again felt that his time had been wasted, so he was furious. He grabbed a hammer and went to Nettie's bedroom. She's the disabled sister. And he beat her in the head. He then pulled the cord from an alarm clock and tied her hands, making the clock stop at 12.06 a.m. Then he made his way to Ma's room, where she was awakened by a hammer slamming into her skull. Ramirez hit her with such force, pieces of her brain splattered onto the wall. He then demanded money, but she was in no condition to answer, so he decided to try to restore her speech by using an electric cord to repeatedly shock her. Did he think he was a doctor now? I don't know. Shocking her back into life? Oh, it's so disturbing. She was half conscious as the electricity tore through her beaten, feeble body. Ramirez then assaulted her and tied her up with electrical tape and left her spread eagle on her bed. I truly don't understand where these repulsively sick thoughts come from. It's beyond comprehension. True to his nature, this torture excited his dark sexuality, so he went back to Nettie's room and ripped her nightgown off and sexually assaulted her. This is the second elderly disabled woman he's raped. There should be a special hell for people like this. That's awful. He then found a tube of red lipstick and left a pentagram on Nettie's bedroom wall. Then he went again into Ma's room and also drew a pentagram on her wall. But he didn't stop there. He drew one more pentagram on Ma's thigh. One final indignity. Again, where does this stuff come from? Who thinks of these things is... (sighs) I don't even want to say disturbing. It's just horrid. Yeah, it really is. A gardener who was also a friend of the sisters found them two days later. They were both comatose and barely alive. The alarm clock was found on the floor and had a partial bloody shoe print. Detectives were able to match that partial print to an avia shoe from a previous crime. Evidence was also found showing that after he attacked these sweet ladies, 
Ramirez had stayed in their home for quite a while, relaxing, eating a banana, and drinking a Coke. Both sisters died shortly after they were discovered. I can't believe they lasted that long. I know. I mean, those ladies were strong. For two days, no food, no water, injured, bleeding. And I think, I don't remember exactly how long, but one of them I think lasted. One of them died pretty shortly after they were discovered, and the other one I think lasted about 30 days. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Heartbreaking. So I'm going to take a second because I'm guessing a lot of people know what a pentagram is. And I kind of knew what it was, but I wanted to understand why this symbol was so important to Ramirez. And there's actually a lot of information on the history of pentagrams with many different meanings to various religious groups. But to simplify, a pentagram is a five-pointed star. And if a circle is drawn around the five points, it becomes a similar symbol to what is referred to as the pentacle, which is used by Wiccans and in paganism as a sign of life and connections. But for Christians, without the circle, this symbolized the five senses, sight, smell, taste, hearing, and touch. It also symbolized the five wounds of Christ. The shape should always be upright, showing the body of man with the topmost triangle seen as man's head pointing to heaven, and the other four points representing open arms and legs. But if you add the circle and invert a pentagram, as many cult groups do, it becomes the sign of the goat of black magic, whose head is the middle of the star, the two horns are at the top, the ears droop to the right and left, and the pointy beard is at the bottom. In this form, it's a sign of antagonism and fatality. It also represents the goat of lust, attacking the heavens with its horns. You know, I knew what it was, or at least I thought I knew what it was, but yeah, I, me never, too. I never really knew what it meant. Honestly, I'm seeing Ramirez as more of an ass than a goat. Mm-hmm. I mean, for those, sure. And plus, those poor ladies had to live like that for two days. At this point, he might be a little too much for even Satan. I know. It's, oh, it's so much. It's so much. The very next evening, on May 30th, Ramirez headed out again, dressed in his all-black uniform of death. He drove to Burbank. Earlier that day, he had stacked a bunch of hardback books in the back seat of his stolen car so that if he was shot at by the police, the books would stop the bullets. He had seen it in a movie. Okay, okay. We need to stop because when you had said that, I was picturing him (laughs) holding these books in front of him as a shield, not necessarily them shooting at the car. I apparently never saw this movie. (laughs) I didn't either. So I had visions of him hopping out going, hey, don't shoot yet. I need to put the books in front of me. (laughs) But apparently... (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You you are criminally challenged, aren't you? (laughs) Apparently, I watched too many rom-coms. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen this movie. But okay, what happens if they shoot him from the side of the car? I'm not him. And I don't know why he didn't stack the sides of the car just to make you happy. <laughs> why didn't he make himself a bookmobile? Maybe that wasn't in the movie. I don't know. <laughs> I just, I had visions. I'm sorry. I had visions. <laughs> I thought it was funny, her interpretation of that. 
Um, anyway, so we all get that the books were stacked in the back seat in case they shot through the car, right? As they were chasing him down right. the street. Okay, now I get it. <laughs> okay, so I'm let's taking, go. I'm taking your hand. I'll follow along. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Just as once. Let's not go crazy. Then he broke into 42-year-old Carol Kyle's home through a doggy door. He went into her room, woke her up, and demanded to know who else was in the house. She told him that her 11-year-old son was there. You know, as a mom, that must have been so hard to tell him about her son. I I don't know what I would have done in that moment. Kind of wonder if she wouldn't have if... Exactly. He wouldn't have been mad if the son came in. Right. Taking something out on the son. It's such right. a tough choice. No, I get it. I get it. And I do find it ironic that he's going through the doggy door. Well, actually, he didn't put his body through the doggy door. He actually put his arms through the doggy door. And reached up and unlocked the door. Seriously, how long were this man's arms? Uh, it said that he had like big hands and I guess he was just tall and thin. So I don't know. Oof. So he went and grabbed the boy, but Carol begged him not to hurt her son. So he handcuffed them together and forced them both into a closet. Carol was a seasoned nurse and was used to stressful situations. So she stayed calm, trying to de-escalate the situation for her son. Ramirez ransacked their home, then returned to the closet and dragged Carol out by her hair. While robbing the house, he discovered that she also had a 16-year-old daughter, so Ramirez threatened to wait for her daughter to come home if she didn't tell him about all her valuables. So Carol gave him everything, which wasn't much after her husband's death. Ramirez then sexually assaulted her several times. Carol described her attacker as having deep, dark eyes that were not human. But she had said to him, quote, You must have had a very bad life to do this to me. End quote. And he responded, saying, quote, You're lucky I'm letting you live. End quote. Ramirez then went to grab her son, but Carol begged him not to let her son see her naked and she was stunned when he gave her a nightgown to put on. Then he threatened her not to look at him, or he would cut her eyes out. He then handcuffed Carol and her son to the bed and left the handcuff key on a nearby mantle. He told her that her daughter could unlock them when she came home, but her son was able to reach the phone and he called 911. Carol was able to provide a detailed composite sketch. So this particular victim's experience is really intriguing because it's so different from the others. You know, of course he was evil, but also a tiny bit sympathetic towards her and her son. It makes me wonder if this is part of the high where he allows some people to live while others must die. I can't help but wonder how he chooses. Yeah, I was wondering the same thing. And wondered if this had anything to do with his childhood and the pain that he went through, or if the sexual high he gets doesn't push him over the edge with a small child there. Seeing all of those things with his previous actions and future actions, you can't make sense of it because he's not the same in any situation. No, he's not. That's what you were saying in the very beginning. His motive was not the same. He didn't yeah. use the same objects. He didn't do the same crimes. He didn't 
yeah. hurt the same people. He's right. really all over the map. He could have been much more evil here. He could have waited for her daughter. He could have killed her and her son. He could have abused them both. But he just changes it up for some reason. And there's no rhyme or reason as to as to what he's doing and why he's doing it. I think this particular instance, I think, had to do with the little boy. Well, he's, but not, that's, he's not very kind to children. So. That's, I know, but that's my speculation, put it yeah. that way. Yeah, it could be. Something, if he had a heart, maybe something pulled on his heartstrings. Um, but it is a very different situation. I'm just happy that they got out of it alive. Exactly. On June 28, 1985, 28-year-old Patty Higgins, a very attractive special education teacher, was found dead in her apartment in the city of Arcadia. The killer had broken a window and gained entry. With no one else home, he viciously raped and beat her and then cut her throat. It's suspected that she was a victim of Ramirez, but there was no evidence linking him, so charges were dismissed before his trial. When you see a list of victims, she doesn't come up. It was a speculation because of what was done. Right. It was definitely his M.O. If he had one. <laughs> right. Well, one of his M.O.s. On July 2nd, 1985, we're only in July and we started the very end of May. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I know. On July 2nd, 1985, another murder was confirmed. Mary Louise Cannon, age 75, was alone and asleep in her home when she was brutally attacked and beaten with a lamp. Her body was found stabbed and her throat had been slashed. Ramirez was like a demonic force that couldn't be satisfied. And here we have now a lamp. Here's yet another weapon type. It's definitely a weapon of opportunity. Yep. Now this story right here is very interesting. On July 5th, 1985 in Sierra Madre, Whitney Bennett, a 16-year-old girl, was asleep in her bed. Ramirez entered her bedroom and vowed that tonight he would kill for Satan. So he beat her with a tire iron. Ramirez later admitted that when he was attacking Whitney with a tire iron, he wanted to kill her. So he went looking for a knife. When he couldn't find one, he yanked out a telephone cord and began to strangle her. But suddenly he froze. Blue sparks flew from the cord and her body had a blue haze all around it. He thought that he saw her soul come to life and this scared the crap out of him. Ramirez saw this as a sign that God himself had intervened. So he took off and Whitney lived. This story is super interesting because he's always so ballsy, you know, with Satan being his wingman and all. But just a few little godly sparks with a blue haze and he was out of there. Again, this could be seen as with his upbringing, knowing that even with Satan being his ride or die, he don't want to mess with God because that boy ran. Yeah, I do find that funny. But OK, maybe I'm being naive. What were the blue sparks? Were I they don't from know. The, from the cord had electricity through them? I'm going to guess. But where'd the blue haze come from? I mean, it almost seems like, was this even all in his head? I think that's a great explanation. I mean, doesn't make sense, because even if you get electrocuted, I, I don't know anything about electrocution, but I've never heard of a blue haze. No, maybe it's so far in his head that he's having visions of his mother. But to immediately go straight to the God theory, I mean, to me, that's, the boy is struggling. He's struggling. He knows he's doing wrong, 
and he's struggling with God intervening and watching him, if you ask me. Sounds logical, especially since his mother was so Catholic. And didn't he ask her to pray for him at one point? Yep. So he does have that good and evil inside. I think evil's winning, but... Oh, evil's definitely winning, but somehow good gets in there. It's in his... It's in his foundation in there, and uh, and he's scared of it because he knows he's doing wrong. doesn't stop him, unfortunately. We could be way off, but it makes sense to me. So following her attack, the teenager needed 500 stitches. That's right, 500 stitches to her head, and her skull was fractured. Whitney said she only remembered going to bed and waking up beaten and bloody. This young girl had been attacked while her parents slept in the next room. 500 stitches? Is her head even that big? Right. And how did her parents not hear any of this? How was he really that good? I mean, not to be graphic, but even metal hitting bone would make noise. Absolutely. You know, so it's amazing. It really is amazing that he gets away with this stuff. Like you said, he was swinging like a crazy person. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he hit other things than just... Her. Right. Maybe at the wall or the, the headboard, headboard or yeah. something. I don't get it. I really don't get it. At this scene, police found a pink comforter with a very familiar bloody shoe print on it. The print was similar to the Cesara murders and the abductions of an eight-year-old and ten-year-old where the children were sexually assaulted and then let go. On July 6, 1985, Lorraine Rodriguez and her husband, John, who happened to be an L.A. County Sheriff's deputy, were asleep at home. John had gone off to bed while Lorraine fell asleep on the sofa, but she woke up after hearing a strange noise. She yelled to her husband and asked him if he had opened a window. John was annoyed to be woken up and yelled back that he hadn't opened the window and reminded her that the windows had been painted shut years ago. But Lorraine knew the window had been opened and someone was either in the house or trying to get in. John instinctively got up with his gun and together they went to check things out. They saw that a window had been pried open and was all the way up. So John got his flashlight and shined it out the window, finding a fresh shoe print on the wet ground. John was smart enough to grab a box and cover up the wet print to preserve it. Apparently, when Ramirez heard the couple talking, he got scared and silently went back to his car and fled. Because they weren't vulnerable. Right. And I actually had visions of, you know, when your dad gets up and he's in his underwear with his gun (laughs) ready to go. (laughs) Please don't make me flash back to that moment right now. I'm scared enough. (laughs) I just said when you said that, oh my God, my dad used to do that. Oh. Yeah, he had lost the element of surprise, so he took off like the coward that he is. Yeah, they were awake. They were like, okay, bring it. Yeah, bring it. Let's see what you got now. Detective Carrillo was notified when the shoe print was found at the deputy's home. Carrillo told John, quote, you're very lucky because this guy is evil and he's done things you don't even want to know about, end quote. The shoe print was an avia shoe, size 11 and a half. The detectives assumed it would be black since they knew their killer was always described as wearing all black. Detectives found out that only six of those particular shoes in black were manufactured. Five went to Arizona 
and only one was sent to Los Angeles. So if they could catch their killer wearing those shoes with only one pair known to be in the city, it was a done deal for Ramirez. So if they knew that one went to L.A., they had to know what store it went to. Too bad they couldn't find out I bought them. Well, this is back in the day before... Computers. Computers and everything else we have now. So I imagine that wasn't something they normally did. That same night, Ramirez was unfulfilled and eager following the attempted home invasion. There was a report of an attempted abduction of a young girl in Eagle Rock. The girl was grabbed right off the street, but she was tough and she fought her abductor and escaped. 911 was called and the girl gave a description of Ramirez and said the man was driving a blue Toyota. Ramirez left that scene so fast that he was pulled over by an LAPD motorcycle officer. Officer John Stavros asked Ramirez for his license and registration, and Ramirez said he left his wallet at home. So Stavros asks him to step out of the car and put his hands on the hood. He searched Ramirez, but found nothing because Ramirez had pitched his weed and gun out the window. When the officer heads back to his motorcycle, he hears over the radio about the attempted kidnap of the young girl and her description of the suspect and the car he was driving. So the officer writes the ticket and walks back to Ramirez and says, quote, Hey, you're not that guy killing people in their homes, are you? End quote. Oh my gosh. Ramirez responds, quote, No way, man. When are you guys going to catch that? The officer says, we'll get him. And Ramirez says, I hope so. I got a wife, you know. Then the officer says, you sure you're not him? And Ramirez says, hey, man, it's not me. Come on here. So the officer walks back to his motorcycle. Ramirez, who also heard what was said on the radio, knows he's in trouble. So he says a quick prayer to Satan draws a pentagram on the hood of the car and takes off running and he gets away. I can't even imagine how this officer felt after realizing that he had the night stalker and let him get away. Always go with your gut. I personally can't believe that he asked him if he was the night stalker. Like you say, um, yes, officer. Uh, I am and I'll sign my speeding ticket now. With a little pentagram on the end of it. <laughs> And he had time to draw a pentagram uh, on the hood? Yeah, because the officer went back to his motorcycle. So he drew the pentagram just and being... He doodled before he left. Just being extra, and then he took off. It was kind of like a little, uh, you had me, but you don't have me. He's ballsy, I it's, will say that. It's pretty incredible. Really, it is. Back at the station, a detective contacted Detectives Salerno and Carrillo and said he had a footprint that matched their suspect's footprint in the case of an eight-year-old that was abducted from her home. She was taken to a construction site, assaulted, and then set free. But at that construction site, the workers had poured concrete that very day. So this shoe print was set in concrete. Upon review, Detective Carrillo immediately recognized the pattern on the shoe print and this provided them with circumstantial evidence linking the child abductions to the serial killings. Now, for once, 
He wasn't very lucky in that situation. They have a shoe print in concrete. He wasn't paying attention. He's starting to get sloppy, it sounds like, a little bit. Yep, getting cocky. Now that they have evidence linking the child abductions, the case of six-year-old Anastasia Ronas from February of 1985, a few months prior, was reviewed. I want to say on a side note, this part of the story is given by a now 41-year-old Anastasia wanting to tell her story and not letting this incident define her. I find it very empowering that she was so transparent about what happened to her when she was only six years old, but these details are still hard to hear. I can't believe she remembered after all these years. You know, I have a pretty good memory from when I was a kid, and I can't believe she'd ever forget, you know? This had to... I guess you're either going to go one way, you're right. two, one of two ways. You're right. going to completely remember or completely block it out. So here's her story. Anastasia had been woken up and carried out of her home through a window. She was half asleep and wasn't really aware of what was happening, but the man carrying her reminded her of a family member, so she wasn't scared initially. She said, quote, I don't know how long we were driving, but I do remember he made me open the glove box and there was a gun inside. Then he shut it and said, I just want to make sure you know that it's there. Then he made me touch him. End quote. When they finally reached a house, he put her in a duffel bag, zipped it up, and told her she needed to be quiet. He said, Don't mess with me. Do what I say. Then he took her to a room and played Madonna's Like a Virgin really loud and began assaulting her. I'm sure that at that time she didn't understand the significance of him playing like a virgin, but damn, that's next level demented. That's just beyond mean. Wow. His mind, super warped. But to have enough forethought to have that there to play when he does that to her? Ugh, it's so sick. That's calculated. It is. She said he hurt her, and she kept asking him to stop. He didn't. So she told him she had to go to the bathroom just to make him stop. He actually took her and sat her on a sink. But after a few times, he told her, Okay, stop now. I know you don't have to go. She described moments when he looked at her like he was sorry he was doing this, but apparently he wasn't sorry enough to actually stop. When they finally left the home, he put her back in the duffel bag. He drove her to an all-night gas station let her out, and told her to go into the gas station and have them call 911 so her family could come and get her. So he has these random flashes of humanity that happen for no particular reason. What made her different from the other children he had abducted? That's a great question. I don't get it. I don't understand. And I have to think how strong Anastasia is. Then and actually now, right? to go through something so traumatic at a, such a young age and made enough peace with it to relive it. She's giving information that, you know, is important because hopefully it'll be similar to what other people went through and they can prove that this was him that did all these abductions and assaults. But yeah, it definitely takes a, a very, very strong mind to get through that. A strong will. Will and mind. Right. Absolutely. At this time, there had been quite a few attempts at child abduction and some actual abductions in the Los Angeles area. 
Another six-year-old girl was abducted, assaulted, and then abandoned. A nine-year-old boy was also taken from his bed, assaulted, and then abandoned. An eight-year-old girl was taken from her bed, assaulted in a car, and also abandoned. At that time, when kids were kidnapped or sexually assaulted, an entirely different department was assigned to deal with children's cases. And because of that, the information regarding the abductions does not go to the Sheriff's Homicide Bureau because obviously there wasn't a homicide. So it's two separate divisions, two separate cases, or two separate sets of cases. Exactly. And they don't intermingle. They don't intermingle. And there was no computers to connect any dots back then. Everything was done by hand. So Detective Carrillo, was he the Italian one? No, he was the Kukui. Kukui. (laughs) (laughs) But Detective Carrillo had, early on, been suspecting a connection through the witness sketches of the suspect. There were so many similarities as far as the suspect being tall, thin, light-skinned, messy hair, brown-stained teeth, a pungent odor, all-black clothing, a members-only jacket, and he was either Hispanic or Caucasian, according to witnesses from the serial killings and child abductions. I'm sure the Avia, the Avia shoes shoes and members only jackets. I'm sure they're appreciating this right about now. (laughs) Right. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows how it works out for businesses like this? What they say, no publicity is bad publicity. Bad publicity is better than no publicity. Publicity, yes. Uh, And ACDC sure made it through this. Yes, they did. (laughs) But Detective Carrillo was the only investigator who saw the link. Many in the sheriff's department didn't believe there was a link. They even laughed at him because prior to the crime spree, there was no documentation of any criminal in history that had ever crossed over like that. But Detective Carrillo the newbie is about to school him. Look at him. On July 7, 1985, a 61-year-old grandmother named Joyce Lucille Nelson was killed. The murder scene had a lot of blood because she had fought him. She was beaten but apparently not raped. Her family says that to be raped was always a fear for her. But with the resistance, the killer had been especially brutal, stomping her face so hard that he left his shoe print in it, which is how they connected the avia shoe to her crime. How freaking hard do you have to stomp? to leave the details of a shoe print in someone's face. This is the stuff that nightmares are made of. The strength for him to even do that. That's the other thing. He must have seriously been angry. Over what? Over what? Because she fought him and he he wasn't able to do exactly what he wanted to do. I mean, she's an old lady. Apparently it doesn't matter. Yeah, this is so twisted. Her family spoke of what a lovely and spunky lady she was. She was very proud to have purchased her home on her own, so she was quite the go-getter and was greatly adored by her loved ones. Aww. I know. That same evening of July 7, 1985, a woman was startled to hear her neighbor, 63-year-old Sophie Dickman, calling her name. When she responded... Sophie told her that she was bound and had been robbed, raped, and handcuffed to her bed. The suspect had lifted out the cat door and got into the house. While assaulting Sophie, he put a glove in her mouth and a pillow over her head 
and in a growl he said, Don't look at me. He left her alive, and when he left, she was able to slowly move her bed over to the window and call for her neighbor. She was able to describe him as tall and thin, all dressed in black, but more notably, his breath was putrid. So he's assaulting them in more ways than one, it sounds like. Right. It's believed that since he had not raped Joyce Nelson that evening, he found another victim, Sophie, and sexually assaulted her. He left a shoe print there as well. He seems to be attacking in a quicker pace. Plus, he's walking away from homes. We'll never know what was going on in his mind. July 20th, 1985, Ramirez decided to buy a machete. He had caught up on all his notoriety in the media and was loving the attention. So he decided to give them something special to write about. He had plans to shock everyone by decapitating his next victims and placing their heads in the front yard on display. So he drives to the city of Glendale. He breaks into the home of 68-year-old Maxson and 66-year-old Leela Needing. Before entering their room, he prays by dropping to one knee and saying, quote, By all that is evil, I, your humble servant, invoke Satan to be here and accept this offering. End quote. He bursts into their bedroom while they slept and began hacking them with the machete. He ransacks the home and then goes back to the bedroom and shoots the couple with a twenty-two caliber handgun. After they were dead, he continued to mutilate their bodies to honor Satan. Police discovered Maxon's head barely attached and Leela's face had been shot off. The room was a bloodbath. They were both shot with the same twenty-two caliber handgun used in the Dale Okazaki case. He's definitely not getting rid of things. He keeps the same shoes, the same jacket, same gun. Well, he does for a while. We'll explain that in, in just a moment. On the same night of July 20th, 1985, just a few hours after the killings of Maxon and Leela Needing, Ramirez decides to go out again and commits another murder. When police were called to the home of 32-year-old Shana Rong and 32-year-old some kid, Kovanant, they discovered the body of Shainarong, shot in the head with a twenty-five caliber handgun. His wife, Somkid, was repeatedly raped and beaten right next to her dead husband's body. Then Ramirez drags her around the house, slapping and kicking her and forcing her to give him all of their valuables. When she has nothing left to give, he forces her to swear to Satan that she wasn't holding anything back. She does. With her husband dead, Ramirez stays at the home for two to three hours, and during that time, he goes into their eight-year-old son's bedroom and assaults him before leaving the crime scene. Some kid and her son were both extremely traumatized, but she provides a very detailed sketch for investigators that they went public with. Makes you wonder, he left some kids alone... Yep. And then he attacks other kids. That's what I was saying earlier. I don't understand, you know, how... And, and again, it just might be like what his cousin Mike said. Some get to live and some get to die. You get to decide. That might be why he's doing it. 
just because he can. Good old cousin Mike. Good old cousin Mike. On August 6, 1985, Ramirez drove to the city of Northridge. He entered the home of 30-year-old Chris and 27-year-old Virginia Peterson. When he encountered the sleeping couple, he immediately shot Virginia in the face with a 25 caliber semi-automatic handgun. He then shot Chris in the neck. When Chris didn't go down, Ramirez tried to flee the scene, but Chris went after him, and Ramirez shot at him two more times but missed. Chris grabbed him and they struggled, but Ramirez was able to get away. Miraculously, both victims survived their gunshot wounds. Phew. People are like, I've had enough. You need to go down. But he gets away again. Unbelievable. On August 8, 1985, Ramirez went to the city of Diamond Bar. He entered at the rear of the house and made his way to a bedroom where he shot sleeping 31-year-old Elias Abawath in the head and instantly killed him. His wife, 27-year-old Sakina, had just fallen asleep moments before due to a late feeding for their 10-week-old baby boy. She was awakened and handcuffed. Then he beat her with his fists over and over. He demanded that she swear to Satan that she wouldn't scream while he raped her and even went so far as to drink her breast milk. Ew. Yeah. Uh, Everything is just so personal. I don't know how you bounce back from stuff like this. All of it. I mean, not just that, but that's just an extra step that didn't need to happen. It's so twisted. None of this needs to happen, but he's just taking it. He's he's being extra on everything. He's like trying to humiliate her. You know what I mean? It's it's obvious. And take something away from her child. Exactly. Yeah. Showing that he can do literally whatever he wants to do. While he was ransacking the house, the couple's three-year-old son woke up and came into the room. Ramirez tied him up with his mother and then went into the kitchen and ate half of a honeydew melon before he left. When Sakina was sure Ramirez was gone, she was able to untie her three-year-old son, but not herself, so she told him to go to the neighbor's house and get them. The boy was scared to go out into the night, so his mother told him he could get sweets from the neighbors. This changed everything, and the child ran to the neighbors and asked for sweets at about 3 a.m. The neighbors were shocked and confused, but they gave him ice cream. Then when they returned the boy, they came upon Sakina, naked, beaten, and tied up next to her dead husband, who had been shot with a twenty-five semi-automatic handgun, the same gun used at the Peterson house. It is amazing. He would just bribe them with ice cream and candy. and Right? And can you imagine being the neighbor? Just some three-year-old kid shows up. I'd, 3 a.m.? I, I would have called the police. I would have been like, what's happening right now? You where, know? Yeah, where are your parents? How did you get out and why are you coming here? Exactly. Yeah. I, I, but I think it's... It's probably shock just to see. Yeah. It. It's interesting that they actually gave him sweets before sending him home. It's like, okay, <laughs> here you go. <laughs> oh, it was a different world back then. That same day, August 8th, 1985, a public broadcast was put out regarding the Night Stalker and the fact that he always wore gloves to make entries and traveled by highway breaking into homes to murder and assault people using guns, knives, tire irons, handcuffs, thumb cuffs, and even his own foot 
to inflict serious injury. So he wears gloves to enter the house, but he'll go in and eat food. He assaults whoever. I'm sure he leaves DNA. It wasn't a big thing back then. But still. It was all about fingerprints back then. And so he wore the gloves. That was his main source, you know, his main protection. In today's world, yeah, half of the stuff that he did, he would have been caught immediately. Oh, yeah. On August 18th, 1985, back in the San Francisco Bay Area, Peter Pan, 66, was shot in the head and his wife, Barbara, aged 62, was beaten, raped, and also shot in the head. But she was still alive. The killer had eaten food from the refrigerator and vomited it all over the kitchen floor. He then used lipstick to draw a pentagram and also carved the words Jack the Knife into a bedroom wall. Then he masturbated onto the floor, leaving crucial evidence for detectives. Another shoe print was also left behind. Detective Salerno and Carrillo were told of these attacks and they contacted the Bureau in San Francisco and shared confidential details of the cases so that they could assist each other going forward to catch this killer. I actually did read something about Richard Ramirez and how he did like to stay in the houses afterwards. He liked to snack, and this one in particular, where he threw up, they said he ate everything in the refrigerator and then threw up. Oh, wow. I didn't get that information, but... It was yeah. just it was just a random yeah, thing that I saw. A random it. little detail. Yeah. Following this murder, the then mayor of San Francisco, Diane Feinstein, held a press conference regarding the Night Stalker. As mayor, she was privy to critical and sensitive details that investigators had been keeping confidential so as not to tip off the killer. But Feinstein held up a police sketch which I believe was already public. But then she went on to describe all the evidence from the various cases. So she definitely tipped off the killer about the shoe type, which was huge, and that the various guns he had been using were being tracked. None of this had been made public. She single-handedly could have derailed the entire investigation. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Homicide Bureau was pissed that she jeopardized their entire case. Ramirez later admitted that he saw the news conference with the mayor, and prior to that, he had no idea his shoes were linking him to all the murders. So he quickly dumped the Avia shoes and all his guns off the Golden Gate Bridge and headed back to Los Angeles. What the heck was this lady thinking? It almost seems like knowing that the entire state was on edge and living in fear. She wanted to give everybody all the juicy details and get her 15 minutes of fame. How freaking irresponsible. So irresponsible. I actually asked a law enforcement friend of mine about this because I was curious of basically a, a couple things. Why did she do it and how did she get all the information? The response was she did it probably for political reasons, and especially since the police know and everybody knows you don't give those details out, you keep them back so that when someone is arrested, they have these things to refer to. Right. As far as somebody giving her all this information, they said that 
it was probably another trying to get ahead. If Einstein gets ahead, then he gets ahead or whoever it was gets ahead as well. Right, right. Well, it was stupid. If she tried to do it for a political advantage, this could have killed her career entirely. And I don't know that it did affect her career or not. On August 24th, 1985, 13-year-old James Romero III and his family had just returned from a vacation in Mexico. Being out of the country for a while, they were not fully aware of the Night Stalker events. James had slept on the drive home, which kept him wide awake that night. While his family slept, he decided to go outside and grab a pillow he'd left in the truck. And while he was out, he heard someone walking on the gravel in their backyard. He slowly crept into the backyard, thinking it was just an animal because they had no side gate, so animals made their way back there often. But when he looked, he saw nothing and decided to go into the garage and work on his mini bike for a while. He then heard another noise right outside the garage door, which was unlocked. He then realized it was a person out there, not an animal. So he got scared, knowing that if someone walked through the door, it would block him from re-entering the house. Finally, he got the nerve and ran into the house before that could happen. He hurried to a window where he could safely see what was going on outside. Then he saw him, a tall, slim figure stooped down looking into their home with all the noise his father woke up and asked what was going on james told him they had a prowler at this point ramirez must have realized something was up and he had lost the surprise advantage so he took off back to his stolen car but james ran outside while ramirez was starting to pull away ramirez saw the boy and glared at him but James was savvy enough to get a partial license plate and a description of the orange car and reported it to the police. This is one brave 13-year-old kid. I wouldn't be chasing a prowler around at night no matter what was going on. And running out of the garage, he could have been anywhere. I know, Ramirez could have opened the door, it sounds like, and blocked him at the last minute. So he was very brave to get up and do that and get into the house. Crazy. During this time, another man calls in that his friend's orange car had just been stolen from Chinatown. The orange car matched the partial license plate number given by James and was eventually located and processed for prints. The car thief had wiped it down, but missed wiping down the rearview mirror, which he had obviously adjusted at some point. Those fingerprints were how they were able to positively identify who Richard Ramirez actually was through his previous arrests. Having this positive ID, they released a 1984 mugshot of him with the caption, There will be no place you can hide. Ooh, look at him getting all bad. I love it. I love it. Was there any pentagram on this orange car? <laughs> None that was reported. <laughs> This ID was a huge break in the case, and the Bureau finally acknowledged that Detective Carrillo had been right all along by suspecting that they had a serial killer that was also responsible for the recent child abductions. They wanted Ramirez bad. He was wild and unpredictable and capable of hurting anybody at any time. All he needed was an opportunity and Satan's protection. 
and apparently Feinstein to give up all the details. <laughs> right. She's the third person in their trinity. <laughs> but unfortunately, on that same evening of August 24th, 1985, in Mission Viejo, following the failed break-in at the Romero home, Ramirez made his way to the home of 30-year-old Bill Carnes and 29-year-old Inez Erickson. Entering their home, he shot Bill in the head three times. He then beats Inez with his fists and rapes her. He makes her swear to love Satan. So she does. But before he leaves, he gently kisses her on the lips, then ties her up and tells her, I am the Night Stalker. Tell them I was here. What a freaking freak. He's definitely seeking notoriety at this point. He's such a sick, bad word I'm not going to say. <laughs> Surgeons were able to remove two of the three bullets from Bill's head, and miraculously, he also survived. On August 27, 1985, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department received a call from a woman who had claimed that her homeless father had befriended a guy by the name of Rick, and they thought he might be the Night Stalker because Rick had told her father that he had murdered an Asian couple and that he used a twenty-two semi-automatic pistol to do it. Then the homeless man said he had received that gun and sold it in Tijuana. So investigators went to Tijuana and recovered the gun. Wow, what are the chances? For them to find it? That's amazing. Seems like something that only happens on TV. It also sounds like Ramirez needed to brag, and the only person he could do it with or think to do it with was a homeless person. I mean, who's going to believe him? You're probably right about that. They also recovered a boom box that had been stolen from one of the crime scenes. Now they have more evidence that Richard Ramirez, also known as Rick, is their killer. A stolen bracelet was also turned in by a female knowing that her boyfriend had gotten it from Rick, who had bad teeth and wore an ACDC hat. At first, her boyfriend, Armando, refused to help detectives, but after they told him he could be charged as an accessory, he confirmed the full name of Richard Ramirez. On August 30, 1985, investigators decided to put Ramirez's name and face out to the mass media knowing he would definitely try to leave Los Angeles and make a run for it. They already knew he used the Greyhound bus system often, and he even had a locker at the bus terminal. So investigators set up a surveillance team at the outbound side of the station. But this big media release all happened while Ramirez was in Arizona visiting his brother. So instead of leaving, he was actually coming back into Los Angeles that weekend and no surveillance team had been established on the arrival side. So they completely missed him returning. But Ramirez sees all the undercover cops. Even though he has no idea why they're all over the place, he wants no part of it. So he quickly leaves the bus terminal. You know, this guy really does have some unbelievable luck throughout this crime spree. For as active as he was, being out there so often making a bazillion mistakes, he created a bazillion opportunities to be caught. And yet, they don't catch him, because he gets lucky every single time. 
I mean, what are the chances a mayor is going to tip you off on what evidence to ditch? It's totally understandable how he could believe that Papa Satan was protecting him. All these wild details add to this horrifying story being so fascinating. You're so right. The combination of luck and mistakes are literally astounding. I know we're all human and make mistakes, but come on, man. Right? Okay, so now he's out of the bus terminal that's crawling with undercover cops, and he heads to a nearby liquor store to grab a snack. He has a major sweet tooth, and at this moment, not a care in the world. While he's there, he goes to pay for his stuff, and an elderly woman sees him and stares for a moment. Then she starts screaming, El Matador, El Matador, which means the killer in Spanish. But Ramirez still has no idea what's going on. I have to admit that I'm slightly amused by this because Ramirez was probably looking around for a killer too, not realizing it was him. <laughs> he was just getting a snack. To right, help he's probably with like, his... what killer? What killer? We need to get out of here. <laughs> he just wanted his sweet tooth snack to help his teeth situation. <laughs> Let's just get him all the way out. Right. But as he's standing there confused, he finally notices his face plastered all over the local newspapers. Mm -hmm. He panics and darts out the door, then quickly jumps on a bus going to East L.A., where one of his brothers lives just about eight miles away. But the store owner was already on the phone with the police, and cruisers and helicopters were dispatched. As soon as he's on the bus, a passenger with a newspaper looks over at him. The passenger immediately got off the bus, and Ramirez saw him go to a payphone and start frantically dialing. Ramirez knew he had been made. Then more people on the bus began to turn around and look directly at him and point. They started to mumble, It's him! It's him! At this point, I'm sure he's making a nice little mess in his pants. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now the guy who jumped off the bus flagged down a gas company truck and told him to follow the bus because the night stalker was on it. So Ramirez notices the truck and jumps off the bus as soon as possible. But it was too late. The chase was on. The sirens were coming closer. They'd found him, finally. Running as fast as he can, his lungs are screaming and his body is ready to give out. But Ramirez was being tracked and many people had called 911, so he couldn't stop. He had to keep going. So he ran onto Interstate 5, sprinting across all the lanes. Again with the crazy luck, because that is an insanely busy freeway. That is an <laughs> understatement. It's one of the most major freeways in California. He then tried to carjack a guy, but the guy fought back and Ramirez couldn't get the upper hand. So he kept on running with more and more people recognizing him along the way. He ran through a backyard where a man was barbecuing and that guy saw him and started hitting him with the spatula he had been cooking with. Okay, I know this isn't funny, but I completely pictured him just smacking the hell out of him with <laughs> right right barbecue sauce everywhere <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> hamburgers flying <laughs> then ramirez tried to carjack another car with a woman in it he demanded she give him the keys or he'd kill her but her husband was nearby and saw what was happening 
So he grabbed a metal bar from a gate, ran at Ramirez, and started beating him over the head with it. So Ramirez had no choice but to keep running. While he ran, the entire neighborhood came to life, and they were coming for him. While running, Ramirez turned back to the crowd and stuck his tongue in and out and started hissing like a snake. But a metal bar came crashing down hard on his head, and down he went. Tongue in and out hissing at them? Was he hoping that his bad breath would be like a toxic gas (laughs) and make him pass out? (laughs) I'm surprised it didn't. (laughs) When the patrol car finally arrived, they saw a crowd of people surrounding a man lying on the sidewalk with his hands up, trying to protect himself. The deputies could tell he was severely injured. The crowd was beating him down hard, and Ramirez had blood all over his head, his vicious hands, and his stupid black shirt. Go Islos, those are my peeps and the real gangsters of L.A., and I can guarantee there was a nana out there with a chancla too, and you don't want (laughs) none of that. (laughs) Chancla's flying. One of the men in the crowd overheard Ramirez say in Spanish that he felt lucky that the deputy showed up because he knew that the mob was going to finish him. He was just really exhausted and tired of running. I love that they showed him real pain and what fearing for his life felt like. Oh, they don't play. No, they don't. They don't. Exactly. He got a small taste of his own medicine for what he did to the victims. And because, what did he say earlier? The messenger of death and Satan has his back. He throws his hands up in the air trying to protect himself. Like I said, full on coward. Absolutely. According to the sheriff's deputies, right as they arrived, the crowd of citizens was circling Ramirez and it was getting bigger and they were closing in on him. The officers heard the people saying, Ese es el maton, which means he's the killer. And they said, let's get him, let's get him. The officers knew they had to get control over the quickly growing and enraged lynch mob. So they rescued Ramirez and arrested him. He went happily under the protection (laughs) of the deputies. There's a video of Ramirez in the back of the deputy's car following this incident. And when they asked him his name, he said, it's me. It's me, Richard Ramirez. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I I just find that so hysterical. (laughs) According to Ramirez, he was outraged because he said, the first guy was telling his wife to go get their gun so he could shoot me. I didn't give a (coughs) at that point because I was so (coughs) tired. Then I looked down the street and I saw the sheriff's patrol car coming. (laughs) I find it highly entertaining that Satan's BFF was pretty much begging the deputies to take him in and quickly admit to being the Night Stalker just to be sure they don't leave his butt behind with the fed-up <laughs> L.A. residents. What a wuss. Yeah, he didn't care. Outraged, safe in the back of the car. I bet if he could have gotten away from all the residents, probably would have run up to the patrol car, banged on the window, let me in, let me in. <laughs> I'm Richard Ramirez, let me it's in. It's me, it's me. <laughs> I swear it is. Look at my shoes, look at my shoes. <laughs> Later, Ramirez stated that 
those people were trying to kill me. I was just really <laughs> pissed off at the way things turned out and that I was under arrest now. So I turned to all the people that were around me and I spit at them and I poked my tongue out at them. I stuck it in and out like a serpent. If I would have had a pistol, I would have made them scatter. They wouldn't be as brave as they thought they were. <laughs> yeah, he conveniently forgets there's a video of his cowardly, stupid butt all bloodied and begging to be saved. Yeah, he's all badass <laughs> telling the police that this is what he's going to do. Please. Like, right? Again, here he is all tough, hiding behind his right. skirt, or in this case, safe with the police. Right. Five minutes before, he's like, don't leave me. Don't right. leave me. <laughs> it's me. It's me. Take me. <laughs> Then upon arriving at the police station, he begged the police to shoot him and save them the trouble of giving him the electric chair. He even offered to play Russian roulette. He said he couldn't live the rest of his life in a cage. But Richie, isn't that where they put all the animals? Snakes are kept in confined cages. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. <laughs> On October 24th, 1985, in a Los Angeles courthouse, Ramirez pled, I just love this, not guilty to all charges. All the charges. Okay. It's ridiculous. Then he held up his hand in court and showed them that he had drawn a pentagram on his palm. And when he left the courtroom, he yelled out, Hail Satan. The same pentagram that was on the car, on the woman, on the walls. But it's not me. I'm not guilty. No, I'm not guilty. It's just a coincidence. We talked about this earlier, but there was a ridiculous amount of groupies showing up for his murder trial. He received a lot of love letters and poetry. Women would come all dressed in black, and many sent him nude photos of themselves. They even visited him and would flash him during these visits. When some of the groupies were interviewed, they felt that Ramirez was the real victim and blamed society for his actions. Oh. But there was one woman who showed up every weekend at 5 a.m. to guarantee she would get a spot to visit Ramirez in jail. Her name was Doreen Loy, and she was a true crime author. But she wasn't there to interview him. She was in love and obsessed with him. And later, they married. It's so hard for me to believe women will want to share their bodies with someone who needs to mutilate a body just to get off. Again, the dating pool cannot be that small. I know I've said it before. We were dating at that time. It was not small at all. No, it was <laughs> Shush. No, sec no secrets spilled here, T. <laughs> So speaking of groupies, I saw that during the trial, he was wearing the black sunglasses. Did you see that? Those look like my grandma's sunglasses. They were so ridiculous. They were, I believe they were Ray-Bans, actually. During the trial, the judge had requested that he remove them, but he never did. He actually wanted to start his own sunglass line. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. To this day, people are still trying to find out the exact pair that he wore, and in the inquiries... There are so many comments about how hot he was and how they wanted to get with him. It's just so gross. And I also saw that Doreen Loy mm -hmm. believed he was innocent until his DNA matched the nine-year-old little girl in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. 
I believe that was his first murder. After that, she divorced him. That's absolutely true. She married him knowing that everything he did was true, except that one. But as soon as she found out that one was true, it was too much for her. But, you know, he could do all the other crimes he did, and she was she was fine with that. Really? Yeah. Her the finding out he... about the nine-year-old that I guess he told her he didn't do. Oh, she... that's what it is. Yeah. Yes. Because she that, left was, him. that was the one that says, she said, I'm, that's it, I'm done. Oh, she was done. But like I'm saying, everything else was okay. Ridiculous. <laughs> Another wackadoodle. Yeah. I'm sorry. Mr. and Mrs. Wackadoodle. Yeah. And she's a true crime author. She's I mean, got nerve. Yeah. She's, <laughs> man, I tell you, it's, oh, it's just so sad. How desperate was she? Looking for material, maybe? No, I don't think so. She really did love him. In addition to the gruesome murders, Ramirez was accused of the child molestation cases, but the district attorney decided not to go forward with those cases since he was already facing the death penalty and they didn't want to put the children through the pain. I get that it was a tough choice for the DA, but I'll bet as time went on, some of those kids who are now adults feel cheated. I get that. I I understand why they didn't want to do it, but I think it... I, I don't know. That's a tough call because would you really want to put your child through that? They already went through it once. Do you want to put it through them again? Again, protecting them as a child is one thing. And then as you get older, realizing what happened and not getting your fair share of justice. I'm just saying it probably messed with them. I, I'm sure it did. I'm sure the whole thing messed with them. Yeah. As adults, maybe they would have wanted to say something. Right. But right. as children, I, I, it's I a get tough it. one. It's I a tough one. I totally get it. I would probably be protective over my kids as well. On September 20th, 1989, Ramirez was convicted on 43 counts. Now, I read in another source that it was 46 counts, but 43 counts keeps coming up, so I'm going to stick with that. He was guilty over and over again. 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries, putting him on death row. But was he executed? No. Don't get me started on our worthless death row process. If anyone's interested in how worthless it is, please listen to our episode, Murdering the Death Penalty. It'll get your blood boiling. It. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail here, but that would totally be a rabbit trail. But, but here's that's another just, that's, murderer. I want to find another word for disgusting. But I know. I really, it was. It's disgusting. I, here's, here's another guy that didn't get his justice, and I'll tell you why right now. Detective Carrillo stated that following the convictions, he went home that night and cried like a baby. On November 7th, 1989, Ramirez was given the death sentence 19 times. I'm just going to pause so I can, you guys can reflect on what I just said. The death penalty 19 times. Like and one wasn't going to do it? not executed. He was then given a chance to speak in the courtroom, and he did. Now, I want you to hear his statement. It's actually pretty deep. Like I've said before, this guy's not stupid, and I don't know how he's not stupid with everything he's done to himself, but he's not stupid. He said, you don't understand me. You are not expected to. You are not capable of it. I am beyond your experience. I am beyond good and evil, and the fact remains that what it is, is. I will be avenged. Lucifer dwells in all of us. 
I don't even know why I'm wasting my breath, but what the hell? For what is said of my life, there have been lies in the past, and there will be lies in the future. I don't believe in the hypocritical, moralistic dogma of this so-called civilized society. I need not look beyond this courtroom to see all the liars, the haters, the killers, the crooks, and the paranoid cowards, truly the tremadotes of the earth. You maggots make me sick. Hypocrites one and all. We are all expendable for a cause. No one knows that better than those who kill for policy clandestinely or openly as do the governments of the world which kill in the name of God and country. I don't need to hear all of society's rationalizations. I've heard them all before. Legions of the night, night breed, repeat not the errors of the night prowler and show no mercy, end quote. That was a very intense speech. Wasn't it? I do have to say, for somebody who didn't want to waste his breath, he definitely got chatty. Yes, he did. Some of the stuff he said was a little delusional. And the part about killing for a cause, so killing for Satan is a cause? To him it is, but I actually thought that what he said was pretty deep. And I wouldn't say, I mean, yes, it's from a twisted mind and it's from the other side of righteousness, but it made a lot of sense to me, unfortunately. it. It, it's sad that he feels this way, but what he said, I, I felt like he made his thoughts somewhat clear. He did. Yeah. He did. Some of the stuff he said, though, when he was talking about killers and liars and crooks, I, that sounds like he's, honestly, to me, like he's pointing a finger at everybody but himself. But really, there are killers and liars and haters and crooks. There absolutely there are. are. But so coming he's from calling a, them out. But but. Coming from a killer or a liar and a hater. But he's saying, you're no better than I am, is what he's saying. I'm not defending this. It's crazy. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just saying, I get it. Like, this is the most I've heard him say. I know he said some other stuff, but this is like, he's really kind of opening his soul right here. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's deep. It's very deep how he feels about the world. It's dark and it's ugly, but it's deep how he feels about the world. And I'm not going to say some of it's... Not true. I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to agree with him. And I think that you probably, maybe me personally, don't want to hear anything he has to say because of everything he did. Exactly. You so don't maybe, respect anything he, he exactly. says. Exactly. I, I don't, I don't want to hear it. Whether it's profound or not, doesn't matter. In my mind, it's still coming from a demonic, horrific person. Like the slime of the earth. Right. So you so, don't want to give him any credibility exactly. to anything that he says. I get it. I get it. But because we're doing this and because I got to read it and write it, I kind of had to go, dang, that's real. That came from his, his, uh, dark soul. Yeah. And I don't think it's very often we get to hear from people's dark souls. So it was interesting to me. Yeah. So you're, you're right. I mean, you are right. And it, again, it's me just probably not being open-minded because I of know. who said it. And we don't want to give him an audience, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Yet again, here, here we, we are. are finding him so interesting. All right. So following that, as he was walking out of the courthouse and asked by a reporter how he felt about the sentence, he said, quote, big deal. Death always went with the territory. I'll see you in Disneyland. 
end quote. It's been speculated that the Disneyland remark was some kind of inside family joke, but what it means to the family was never revealed. It's also a remark that Anton LaVey was quoted as saying, so he may have referenced it for that reason, but nobody really knows. It was never explained. I'm sure Disneyland marketing loved that statement. Well, what did you say earlier? Bad publicity is be- bad publicity, <laughs> publicity is better is still, than no publicity. Right. It's still publicity. <laughs> and I don't think Disneyland's hurting over it. <laughs> you just never know. Right. In 1994, Richard Ramirez agreed to be interviewed by crime writer Philip Carlo. During the interview, Ramirez says to Carlo, quote, Is there such a thing as a bad seed when a baby is born? Is a serial killer already made or is he created? Hey, if you're recording these conversations, make sure the tapes are destroyed after we're done. I don't want no effing tapes of my conversations. You're not going to try to make me out to look bad, are you? End quote. <laughs> delusional much? Now that's delusional. Exactly. If, <laughs> if he doesn't think he's bad, it's terrifying as to what he may think is bad. It's probably rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> right. It's the opposite of everything else. The walk-in killer, the valley intruder, and ultimately the night stalker, Richard Ramirez stated that, as far as Satan is concerned, I believe in a malevolent being, but his description eludes me. I have always felt powers that are evil. Ramirez was also quoted saying, Satan is a stabilizing force in my life. It gives me a reason to be. It's a driving force that motivates me into doing things. I dream about this. Ramirez also claims that he ran into some situations that were very precarious. If you do something so many times, it's bound to happen wrong sometime. To apprehend a serial killer, they need a mistake by the killer or a stroke of luck by the police. Either that or they need to get inside the mind of a serial killer. Cocky much? I think he's trying to give himself credit to say, like, I worked really hard at getting these things done. Isn't that what you're hearing? It is. It's ridiculous. It absolutely is. <sighs> when asked why he killed, Ramirez smiles and simply says, quote, I have no comment at this time. I cannot answer that at this time. A serial killer comes about with the recipe of poverty, drugs, and child abuse. These things contribute to a person's frustrations and anger, and at some point in life, he explodes, end quote. That's actually quite accurate. Not that I want to agree with him like the other statement, but I do believe that is actually a very intelligent statement, how a serial killer is made. Right. That's actually a, a well thought out quote. Not that it's an excuse. No, no, I'm just but saying. It, it was a good comment. Yes, it was. Ultimately, he took the lives of at least 15 people was convicted of 13 homicides, and 15 others survived his attacks, leading to 19 separate death sentences, where Ramirez stated that, quote, I have desires that if I didn't give in to them, I would be crushed by them. I believe in the evil in human nature, and this is a wicked world, and wicked people are born. I blame society, 
my race, and people. It's up to the individual like myself to keep on knocking at whatever door they're trying to get into. I don't care about myself, really. I don't care about what happens to me. I never really did. End uh, quote. Talk about a hypocrite. He had desires he had to give in to, or did he do it for Satan? I have zero desire to read it, but I am curious about what's in Satan's Bible. Does it literally say, beat, torture, shoot, and rape for evil for Satan? I have no idea what it says either, but I did hear that that Bible was put together with, and I don't even know what they'd label them, I'm going to guess, evil stories and quotes, you know. Um, it almost sounds like a book of like Aesop's fables, but for Satan. <laughs> you know? And I could be totally off on that. That's just the way it sounded like it was described kind of in that manner. Mm -hmm. Just a bunch of little stories. So I, I don't know. So how do you interpret that he's doing all these things for Satan if it's just a bunch of little stories? I don't know. I mean, we did go to the church. So then again, that there, it makes me wonder, what are they saying? Right, right. But you know, as soon as I say that, that's what the Bible is. The Bible is a bunch of little stories. True. So, I mean, I guess maybe they think that they are kind of the same. I don't know. I the couldn't same, tell you what opposite. they think. Yeah, I, I, I'm not even going to speak on that. I have no idea. But, you know, it's hard not to take your personal opinions and your personal feelings out of it. And, and be like, oh, it's all bad, it's all evil. But if you can just kind of look at it objectively, it's kind of the same type of thing. But of course... It's the same idea. Of course, the other side of it. Right, the same you know? idea, but different context. Right, exactly. So they're probably trying to mimic, like, the Bible. Ramirez was sent to death row at San Quentin State Prison, but he died on June 7th of 2013 at a California hospital of complications due to B-cell lymphoma and chronic hepatitis C viral infection. Is this where we're supposed to say, oh, I know. Let me, let me wipe the tears away for just a moment. <laughs> a moment of silence. I'll get you a cleaner. <laughs> it has been said that his skin turned neon green. I freaking love that. I hope he was bright, bright neon green. <laughs> it's just so weird. It's the toxicity coming out of his exactly, mouth. Exactly, exactly. He was 53 years old and had been on death row for more than 23 years. That's quite an unsensational death for someone who inflicted so much torture, pain, and fear. Another vile example of a vicious criminal living out his life and not put to death for all the lives he sacrificed for his despicable lust and in the name of Satan. 23 years. Right. And then he it's had to sickening. die himself. It's sickening. Yeah. He had to die himself. And then all that care that he needed because of his illnesses. Exactly. We paid for that. Home. Exactly. <sighs> Brave. But in the end, whether it was due to his many, many unfortunate circumstances as a child or due to his many, many twisted evil and depraved thoughts, the Night Stalker left this earth. And just like he prayed, I pray he is truly with his creator. Thank you all for listening. Take care and don't forget to let your imaginations run wild. We just want to thank you all for sharing your time with us. 
And if you'd like to send in your creepy little grim bits, we would love to hear your personal stories, interests, and suggestions. Please email them to grimwitwithdimwits at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at grimwitwithdimwits, Twitter at grimwitwithdimwits, and Facebook, grimwitwithdimwits. Join us every Monday for new episodes and feel free to share us with your grim-loving friends. We would really appreciate if you would take a minute to rate and review. Five-star ratings go a long way and would really help us out. Until then, we would love it if you'd come back next week to delve with us into the strange and unusual things we just can't wrap our skulls around. <laughs>